Welcome to episode 21 of You're a Financial Planner, Now What? I'm your host, Hannah Moore, certified financial planner and owner of Guiding Wealth Management. Before I introduce this episode's guest, I want to say how excited I was to meet so many of you at FinCon this year. I was inspired hearing your stories of where you are and where you want to go. For real, you guys are amazing. Thank you for finding me and reaching out to me. Based on some of the conversations I had with you, I'm working on some really cool content that I think you're going to love, and I'll have more on that later. But now to introduce my guest today, we have Ron Turner, a CFP and career changer who left corporate America and started his own RIA practice. After five years in the business and hiring his own financial planner, he decided to sell his practice. It's a great story with a lot of tips and what you can do while you're still working to prepare you as you enter the financial planning world. Let's jump right in. Thanks for joining us today, Ron. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, well, I'm really excited to share your story with people because I think you've seen quite a bit in a very short time. For the people who don't know you, can you just give us a quick synopsis of your story? I actually uh, worked in management. Uh, I had a pretty full career working in telecommunications. Um, I'm an engineer by degree. I got interested in in finance very early on, and throughout my career, I've always sort of had a bent. I I actually took some classes uh, towards an MBA that uh, was kind of focused in the finance area. But the big thing that probably for me was just having gotten very interested in probably stock market and Part of it was just aimed towards investing, but it was more a curiosity of how you approach it and sort of what would be good guidelines and what's a good healthy perspective. And I had that all the time I worked. Um, So, you know, I guess everybody has their ups and downs uh, when you're a single investor and you're you're trying to learn things. Um, I went through periods when I thought, boy, I really know what I'm doing. And then there were periods when I thought, I really have no idea what's going on here. and so I, I did uh, experience several stock market declines. You know, the, probably the most problematic one for me was 2000 to 2002. After coming through the late 90s, as anybody knows who's been in this business, it was a great market. And I just saw it collapse and wondered, gee, why couldn't I see these things coming? And following that, I started doing sort of my own research. Most of it was just reading books um, talking to some people that I knew, but you know, mostly it was just reading and, and trying to get a better understanding. And I kind of stumbled across what I think are some pretty major industry perspectives and some academic studies um, on asset allocation and, and you know, trying to adjust for risk and all the kinds of things that uh, later on became play a big role. Well, I got I kind of got myself a little more equipped and rethought how I wanted to approach it. At that point in business, um, I was managing a couple of different groups um, during the, I guess, the period from 2002 on up to about 2008. And as I did that, I, you know, I talked with people just in the workplace. I mean, things had come up. They'd be talking about their 401k, and you know, I'd sit down with friends and we'd go to lunch, and you know, they'd pick my brain a little bit about, well, how are you doing this? And then after I began sharing all that, it became pretty clear to me that the majority of the people in my workplace and the organizations that I was a part of had very little understanding and, and what they were doing in 401ks was pretty much just by the seat of their pants or they'd read one article and go do something. And so I just said, you know, that's really not right. That doesn't make sense to me. And, and these people are kind of jeopardizing their future. So um, I, I just decided to try and do something that um, I thought would be fun for me and would be a learning experience for me. And that was I decided to schedule just what I call brown bag um, lunch seminars. 
and just talk about our company 401k. What were the funds in it? You know, here's some approaches. By the way, you need to know how you feel about risk. And I actually built some basically simplified portfolios that would be sort of a, you know, high risk portfolio, low, and 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 then something that what I call balanced. And just explain why you did these things, and mostly showed people a little bit about some things not to do. Um, and from that, I began just kind of building, I guess, sort of an internal reputation uh, within my business, um, kind of across the company that, um, you know, if somebody had a question, hey, uh, you can call Ron. He probably is already familiar with this. <coughs> I guess about so – go ahead. Me, ask your... let, let me make sure I'm – okay. So make sure everybody kind of is on the same page here. So you're just working a full-time salary job as an engineer or management. Yeah. yeah I, was in, I was an engineering manager. Working full time, um, busy job, and this was kind of just a, a free, fun thing that I thought I would do that might benefit a lot of the folks. By the way, we uh, part of what triggered it was we had a large hiring period that occurred from about 1999 through about 2002, right during that big downturn, and there were a lot of people that came into the business that were just starting out in their careers. So it was an opportunity to coach and mentor people. Did you ever work with a financial planner yourself? Uh, I talked with several. Um, it wasn't until I actually moved back to the Dallas area, Dallas-Fort Worth, um, that I decided to, that I really need to get serious. And that happened in, um, I'm trying to remember exactly what year. I'd have to go back and look. I, would, I guess it was around um, 2000. Um, so late 90s, I moved three times. But in uh, 2000, I settled into Dallas and got started. And at that point, um, that's pretty much when I had begun doing a lot of reading on my own. Um, and I really wasn't doing much outside investing, and I really didn't have much time. The business kept me too busy. So it was really the 401k. Um, I should probably say I, I was uh, accessing some uh, non-qualified stock plans um, that the company offered for the executives, and I began learning a lot more about non-qualified plans on my own. I never went to the, a financial advisor until I really kind of gotten until the time when I began to think, you know what, uh, this might be something I would enjoy doing, and I might be ready to leave the corporate world and see if I can make a go of it. So you were kind of a quintessential do-it-yourselfer investor, is that? Uh, I kind was. of what I'm hearing. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I, I had never. In fact, I interviewed with some folks early on about what I what, now what I realize is, is most of them were more in a sales mode. Um, there wasn't as much financial planning. Um, in fact, I remember talking to one guy and, and, and I talked to him about several things, retirement, uh, my kid's college education, um, you know, how he thought to do several things. And he never really answered me. He just kept presenting me with, his, with the same product. <laughs> so it, it, it didn't really take a brain surgeon to figure out that I, I didn't have the right kind of person of what I was looking for. And I, I really didn't bump into them until probably the mid-2000s uh, was the first time I actually started. I had a friend um, uh, actually, one of my relatives, um, she she worked for uh, a financial advisor with Raymond James, and that was the first time I really began to understand, oh, wait a minute, there's a whole different approach. Um, and he actually was one of the folks that I scheduled a breakfast with and went and met with when I was getting ready to uh, start up my own practice. So I, I never did. I was totally a do-it-yourselfer. So you're with AT&T, and you're presenting these classes. And you just kind of, you enjoy it, 
just doing it because you're curious about it? I mean, did you ever think that maybe you could go become a financial advisor? It never occurred to me. I, I thought, okay, well, I, I'm, you know, I probably got to work another 10 years and, and then I'll, I'll just, you know, retire and like anyone else, you know, that'll kind of be the end of it. And this happened around 2006 and, and I had come away from, actually my assistant that worked for me was the one that, that helped me. Um, because she had called me up and she said there were a group of them that had been, I think, to some kind of financial seminar and they had a lot of questions. There were things they didn't understand. Would I mind sitting down at lunchtime and, and explaining and answering questions? And I did. Um, and when we left that, she, 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 we were walking back to the office and she just goes, wow, I think you could probably make a living doing this. That was really helpful. And, and the, the light bulb came on. It was like, oh, wait a minute. Um, I had su I've had such a good time doing this over the last five years. I'm I'm wondering why hadn't I ever thought of this, and that kind of turned me on to the research mode of saying, let me start looking at it. At that point, I did know s several people who were advisors, um, who were registered investment advisors, and I, I just said, you know, I need to just go talk with them. And so I, you know, I kind of approached this the way I do most things. I said, I need to get some data. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> good yeah, I made a list. Approach. It was. I, I made a list of 10 people that I trusted and, and felt would be um, give me honest uh, input, um, not only about the business. Some of them, it was just about life, just, you know, making this change at, at a late stage in life and what it might do and, you know, what it might mean. And so I basically scheduled time with all 10 of them and went through and kind of put together, uh, uh, assimilated what I thought was, hey, here are some pros and cons and things to think about. And some of them were self-employed people that I just wanted to know, hey, How's that going to work out? Because I've always worked in a corporate environment. So when I got to the end of that list of 10, I developed what I would call, uh, it was pretty short, but it was a basically a business plan and a strategy and, and said, okay, I just need to set some time frames. I had that, that changed on me a little bit because I did all this work in about six months and I thought I was about ready to leave. And I actually um, internally was offered a different position and asked if I would uh, commit to two years. My boss knew that I was considering this at that point. I'd let him know. And so I delayed two years before I really left to get started. Was it 2008 when you made this transition? I did. I made my, I announced my intention to uh, uh, take an early retirement, as we call it then. And uh, that was 2008. And so in January, I told him I would be gone by May. So um, I had to stay through a, a certain period of time to sort of at least get the, whatever financial benefits I could to leave with. I, I, I kind of was one of those folks that said, well, I, I think I'm going to be okay. I think this will work out fine. But if it doesn't, I kind of need to make sure at least I can uh, survive for uh, about another five years. So I kind of had a, a period of time I wanted to make sure I, I could get through it financially myself. <clears throat> so, yep, 2008. So you had like written out a whole financial plan for yourself. I mean, you didn't go to an advisor to help do anything. Now, at that point, I had really, actually, at that point, I developed quite a few tools for me. Now, most of my finances that time were corporate finances. So, I, I mean, 401K, stock options, a restricted stock shares, and a non-qualified deferred compensation plan. I had a lot of tools to use, but they were all unique to the business I worked for and the job that I had. Uh, I had almost nothing outside. I had one, I think I had one investment account where I had sold corporate stock and reinvested it in just a real simple balanced portfolio. So, yes, I had done all that planning, which I, you know, 
to be honest, Anna, what I really did was I, I took those tools and knew that I could use those to turn right around and market myself right back to the corporate management uh, within AT&T. So, you know, if I could look backwards and go, wow, uh, you know, did I know up front that I was laying groundwork to do what I did? Probably not. I probably would have to be honest and say I didn't realize it was going to work, work out the way it did. But having spent many, many years as being someone who was trying to teach some basic financial classes and explain 401ks and what's the difference between a stock and a bond and some things to a whole bunch of people who you know just were working and trying to prepare for their own financial future. That all laid groundwork to kind of vault me in, um, I think, to walk out the door and basically say, okay, now I'm a financial advisor. Who's looking for advice? Well, all those people that had set through those classes, you know, what you've done is you've done the wonder, the thing that I think every advisor out here really needs to remember, and that is you want to develop a trust relationship for clients. You know, they need to feel like they can trust your voice. Um, and, you know, unbeknownst to me, I had already done that. You know, it was just kind of a natural outflow of where I'd been. So, you know, if I, you know, now, now I kind of, I'm kind of going, gee, I, I probably should have broadened my perspective. Maybe I should have offered some of these free brown bags lunch seminars for years to even to other groups and other companies. But, you know, in hindsight, I didn't really realize it was building towards anything. So I could change in career. I just thought uh, it was helpful and it was, it was fun. I learned uh, as always that the teacher learns more than the student. So it worked out great. In 2008, you leave, and then did you start your own RIA? Did you go to a broker dealer, or what? What you know, I I, yeah, that's the other thing that it just it did occur to me to just go to work for someone else, but I felt like you know I'm solid, I'm on solid ground um, personally, and I thought, you know, I think I've got some ideas of the way I want to deal with um, clients, particularly the corporate executives that that I knew. I could probably market pretty well too. That it was a niche, so I said, "Oh, I, I think I wonder how hard this would be." Didn't <laughs> I always underestimate everything? I said, "Oh, this this shouldn't be that bad." Um, you know, I would say that's not the easy way to do it to just go out and create your own business because I had to do a uh, like I said quite a bit of upfront stuff. Uh, I hired a compliance firm to help me with that piece of it um, to outsource that upfront at least get me started. Um, and then I talked with a lot of folks. Um, I hired another, um, or at least used another advisor who I paid on an hourly basis just to meet with, to talk me through some basic things because I knew I wouldn't have enough information. So I did get some help. Uh, it, it wasn't totally just uh, kind of winging it and going on the Internet. Um, there were just too many mistakes I figured I might have made otherwise, and, and that saved me a lot of time. Both of those two people are probably responsible for me being able to really kind of get launched. After that, yes, there were certainly some uh, learn by doing uh, and learn by mistake uh, opportunities that I just had to kind of figure out as I went, I would say, is the basic thing. But um, the RIA part of it, yeah, it just, and I never thought about uh, going to work for a broker dealer or for another RIA, really. Um, I, I, I mean, I can't say that I. Didn't wasn't aware of that option, and I probably would have done that if I really felt like, hey, I'm, I'm going to need a whole lot of help, uh, or I had no idea. If I had no list of prospective clients uh, and nowhere to go, I, I probably would have done it that way. But since I did have, I mean, when I basically after I left AT&T, uh, I already the day I kind of stopped working and didn't go into the office, I had a list of about 150 to 200 names 
and email addresses that I immediately turned out and mailed out letters to on new letterhead, uh, kind of announcing that I was in business. And I probably had uh, had a few calls in the first month, but you know, o- over the next year or so, you know, I probably ended up getting opportunities to visit with quite a few of those folks. So I just decided the RI structure and to be um, sort of be able to build my own practice was a direction I wanted to go. I saw it as partly a challenge and kind of fun. Okay, so you start out on your own as an RIA. Did you think about doing the CFP exam? As soon as I hung out my shingle, I began kind of marking the the cycle, the three-year, uh, which was the requirement, the work requirement, the experience requirement. So as I started working with clients and helping them, I, I knew I was putting the three years in. I waited about a year um, before I really started any of the, uh, you know, the classwork part of it. Uh, which I just did online, but um, and then took the test. I actually took the test probably about nine months before I actually could um, submit all the paperwork. But um, but yes, it was always in my intent to be a CFP. To the career changers who are listening to this and kind of wondering, you know, when should they be doing anything? What regarding the CFP exam? What would your advice be to them? You mean wh- when to go for the CFP? Yeah, I mean, should they be taking the classes while they're still working, sit for the exam then? I mean, like, what what would be the best advice? Um, well, I began taking, you know, if you're if you're working in, um, full time, you know, spreading spreading out the the classwork uh, over you know a period of time is is probably a nice way to do it, just so it doesn't just become your life. Um, if you can do it in the sense of today, I know there's some concentrated ones. Maybe you're, if you're working for a firm or if you're working for yourself and you can find a way to, I suppose, take out three weeks of your life and just dedicate. I, I didn't see that as a possibility in my case. It might have been easier. I actually enjoyed spreading it out, but um, remember, I wasn't really I, – I did the coursework, I, and I, I said this wrong. I did the test after I had started my firm. I actually did the almost all the coursework – Still at AT&T, except I guess the last – I think I finished one or two of the classes um, after I had started my own firm. But I was in a startup firm. I, I jokingly say um, when I started my firm, which was in probably June of 2008, you got to remember, I didn't have any clients. <laughs> I just got up every day and, and got to go look at the screen and, and think about how I would do business and how I would give advice if and when I get clients. So I had plenty of free time. <laughs> you know, which which was a luxury that I, you know, later on uh, I'd look back and think, wow, those were the good old days. Um, but I didn't have any income, so I guess it wasn't so good. The, my perspective now would be uh, if you're going to go do the coursework, um, you know, that's fine. Go and do it. And I liked doing it at a rate that was I could absorb and spend extra time thinking through some of the things. Um, I know it, it sparked some new ideas and some new concepts, and then I would go and read other outside material while I was doing it. So spreading it out for me worked out really nice. I think if you're already in the business, um, you're gaining your experience component. You know, there's there's probably some pretty good ways to get through it a little quicker to get to the end. Um, the only The only criteria, the only real catch for me was just taking the test, uh, obviously, was... Uh, at the time was probably going to be a big intensive push. And so I just scheduled sort of a pretty intense, um, I guess, study method, I'd call it. I kind of outlined how much time a day I was going to spend in test preparation when I finally did sign up for the test and 
I just wanted to push through and get that done and behind me. And I think I waited a little long um, to do that. I had already started my own firm, and I I think I'd been working for about two years. And once I started having clients um, and getting busy and, and having prospect calls, I realized now I, it was kind of hard to study for the test and do all that. So I sympathize with people that are, you know, in their own firm, um, trying to manage their business and also do that test preparation because it's it's pretty intensive and pretty time consuming. When you started your practice, how did you, when you brought on a new client, what did that look like for that client? I mean, were you- Planning-focused or investment-focused, or how did you charge them? So, uh, you know, I had already decided that I would always um, – that, that I, I wasn't interested in dealing with clients to just manage investments. Um, that was certainly a part of it, and I know it was important, but I always felt like planning was what you lead with. So most of the time, it was pretty classic, I guess, uh, financial planning approach, uh, you know, some data gathering. And I had gotten some tools um, through other folks I'd talked with. And like I said, I I had another CFP who uh, had coached me and mentored me. I mean, I I just paid him hourly up front to kind of help. And he shared a lot of the tools he was using. And so I just said, hey, this looks good. I modified some of that uh, as I went. But I I did have a template of sort of the steps and the things I needed. So I kind of knew that I'd have an initial, you know, kind of general meeting with a prospect. Um, I'd share with them sort of what we'd go. I had a a model of what I'll call an output for a financial plan. And so I would share that with them. It was just fictitious, but at least it showed them, you know, what it looked like and what they would get. Uh, once we went through the process, you know, fee structure, you know, I, I guess everybody does this. That was probably the most difficult thing. So I don't know if people, uh, if anyone's going to be listening, that's kind of thinking about starting their own practice. That's the hardest part is to really be able to understand, you know, where do you fit fee wise? Because I was way too low up front and it probably, I probably increased fees about four times in a year. I mean, I just, as I learned how much time would be involved, um, both with clients and then in, in terms of preparation and being thorough. So I kind of ratcheted that up. So I was a little naive, I think, in terms of what the time requirement was to do the planning piece. Um, investment management piece, I, I was familiar enough and, and kind of understood and knew I, I needed to build the model. So I was able to do that early on uh, and manage that. So I, I think, but every client I worked with, every one of them, you know, we did planning, and most of the folks I dealt with were coming and asking questions about, you know, hey, I, I don't know what to do. I know I should save, but I'm not sure how, and I'm not sure, you know, how you ever figure out how much is enough, and those kinds of general questions that clients have, but they just have a natural concern, and, and we were able to just sit down and say, okay, let's, let's first of all, let's take a snapshot of where you are, what you, you know, what it is you really, what are your key interest. I always ask them that. We always wrote that down at the beginning. In fact, when I started a prospective session with a client, I usually ask them, well, what are the three things you really are wanting? You've made enough trouble to come and sit down and talk to a financial advisor. What are the three top things in your mind? What are your three things you worry about um, in your financial life? And once I had those, then I always knew that when I finished and I did a plan presentation, I would come back and we would visit those and we would make sure, you know, has this been answered? Are you comfortable now? You know, Whatever it was, didn't make any difference. So uh, that was pretty much kind of a, the, a little bit of a methodology that I think somebody else had shared with me. So I followed through with that as well. But 
uh, every every client I met with had a plan, and every client that I managed assets for, we did a, an annual update of that plan. So you would charge for the f- initial financial plan and then just charge AUM at the back end, or did you continue to charge financial planning fees every year? So uh, if I had a client that was uh, still working full-time and preparing sort of you know, at whatever stage of life they are, um, and, and most of the ones that were coming were, I would say their kids were approaching college all the way up to probably, you know, within three to five years of retirement. That was generally the age. So maybe 40-ish uh, all the way up to probably late 50s. I probably saw clients all in that range. It's um, a good question. Um, I'm not sure I would, you know, I always felt like that they were coming kind of wanting to gear towards retirement. So I always, you know, weighted that heavily in, in, in how I was going to structure the fees, but I always knew that I was going to work harder, um, in terms of planning with them, you know, uh, in the early going. So I set rates that would combine planning, fixed planning fees, an annual fee, um, now, not that I didn't do some one-time planning. I had a few clients that, that did want that, but uh, and I, I would do that. But I all, usually I would do a one-time plan for them, and then if they had assets to manage, which some did, some didn't. But if they did, then uh, you know I would do an annual retainer with them as well for planning so that they understood that asset management was a different skill set and, and a different effort than planning was. Um, I don't know if that was the best way, but that's kind of the way that I, I model it up front and from some coaching I had from other folks. Now, some of the retired clients, um, you know, generally, and unless it was a complicated situation, um, I didn't, I wasn't charging them retainers for ongoing planning and retirement. Uh, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty here. I would say today I, I probably should have charged them something. It probably wouldn't have been as much as when they were working. Things weren't changing as much, but there were other decisions that had to be made. Um, and I, I, I either would have needed to charge a retainer or I would have to told them, hey, look, this is great. You're retired and, you know, um, life looks good and we've got it set and this is how much you're going to draw out. But there's going to be points of change in your life. And at those times, you know, we can enter into an hourly uh, rate and, and support you or, you know, maybe every three years we need to true things up. Um, what I've personally experienced is, is people who face certain decisions in retirement, uh, like maybe one spouse retires, the other doesn't. Well, when it comes time for the second spouse to retire, there's quite a bit of work that goes into kind of taking a look at that point. Um, insurance seems to be one, one uh, social security, uh, all of those kinds of questions that pop up just take planning time and it's not really recovered. I didn't feel like um, through an asset management fee. You've talked about like kind of the first year it really started ramping up then. How long did it take before you really felt like you were established with a client base? Uh, you know, that's a good question. Um, Oh, I, I, w- I went pretty slow. I really didn't push too hard. Um, I wasn't really doing anything. I, I had kind of established my target niche, and I was kind of trying to stay with it. So I would say probably took yeah, probably about the fourth year. The, the person that I had talked with that had done the same thing I had done, um, he, had, he had shared with me he thought in the third year you would probably hit your stride in terms of, I, I will call it, at least a, a viable practice. You know, I was, I think it was a little longer than that. I'm trying to remember. I, I got to the point to where I knew I needed a little more help, so I needed to, f- to find somebody to be an assistant, at least on a part-time basis. 
and I think that was the fourth year. So at that point, um, it's like anybody starting out in the business, you know, there, there's a lot of things you think you need, but I was, I also knew that I, like I needed financial planning software right up front. So <clears throat> that was actually something I did before I actually hung out my shingle, I guess. So I, I didn't even start the practice until I knew what tools I was going to use there. But I also knew there were other tools that I was going to need eventually. And, uh, you know, the question there was, at what point do you add them? And I probably could have bought them all up front. My fear was I didn't think I could learn and assimilate the knowledge of how to use all of them that quick. So my goal was originally I would, I would just add like one of the tools of the industry each year. So financial planning, you know, I think was first. I can't remember when I did asset management. But, you know, I kind of structured it. So after about the third year, Oh, I added CRM in the second year, um, and then I added uh, asset, an asset management, basically portfolio management software uh, and reporting and those kinds of things in the third year. At that point, I felt like the practice was pretty well established. You know, uh, we all would go, oh, well, it would be nice to have had more clients and more income. But I guess by the end of the third year, it was there. In the fourth year, I really felt like income from it was very self-sustaining, and I was, I was in pretty good shape. You ended up selling your practice. I guess I'll give the spoiler there. <laughs> so how yes. long were you in practice on your own then? So it was 2008 till... So I started in 2008, and by about 2014, um, about that time, the assistant that I'd had for two years, almost to the day, um, she actually quit and went to work full-time and into another job. So that forced me to say, wow, I need to go hire somebody else. And now all of a sudden I was looking at I needed an assistant and to retrain them. And I also really needed to probably find an advisor within the next six months to 12 months who would come in and begin to sort of um, develop a, uh, their own clients and also be prepared to take on the business long term. And suddenly I, I had to ask some life questions like, okay, how long am I really interested in doing this? And in what capacity do I want to do it? You know, the first few years when it's kind of, young and growing and you're inventing everything or, uh, you know, and still learning. It was kind of fun. Obviously, at some point it became very business oriented and I've realized, wow, I'm about to go right back into what I did uh, when I left the corporate world. I'm going to be a manager and so I'm going to be managing people and processes and the doing of the day-to-day -day work is going to be less and, you know, far, farther and farther removed if I'm not careful. I, I just stepped back and I said, you know what, I need to really rethink my own plan here. You know, I did, I did, at this point now, I did the right thing because I called up a financial planner that I knew. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> uh, I, I need advice. Uh, I think I need somebody to help me with my financial plan. Um, so he and his partner sat down with me uh, in the summer of 2014, and I just laid out kind of, here's where I am. I'm not sure where I'm going anymore. But, you know, and they, and they asked some questions, and, um, you know, they, they talked a little bit about their practice. They were in a growth uh, a position of growing. Um, they had looked at acquiring firms, and they basically just kind of didn't say anything more than, you know, if that's an option at some point, you know, you might want to think about it. And we met for about four months, and then I think in October 2014, um, they asked me what would it be like for me to go through their planning process. In other words, I would just be a client, my wife and I. And I accepted that challenge, and, you know, I jokingly told my clients later, um, you know, I've actually paid for a financial plan, so <laughs> you, you may choke on the fees, but uh, they're, they're important. So we did. did that uh, late in 2014, and then, you know, after I went through their process, I saw some things that I really liked. 
Um, I got very, very comfortable with the firm. Uh, I think we were, you know, I jokingly say we, we sort of, it's sort of like we, we met on a blind date. We, then we began dating for about six months and we sort of got engaged, I guess, um, in, in January, 2015. And, uh, we really signed, signed a contract to sell the practice then I think in March and targeted the, uh, the middle of the year. So, you know, filed all the paperwork, um, to move clients, started talking to clients, uh, later that spring. Um, we made a list of clients that were probably a good fit for them and then a list of those who weren't. Um, and so we just kind of had to address those kind of issues and offered. And I think we actually offered, um, <clears throat> it was a more of a wealth management oriented firm. So I, I had about, I think I had about 20 clients that probably looked on paper like they might fit after we went through them. Uh, we actually offered to 19 of those uh, that were we, we settled on, and I think we initially moved 16, so it was a pretty good, pretty fair take rate overall. Um, you know, the, I, I would say it, that went relatively smooth. Um, it wasn't rushed, and I wasn't really looking to sell, and I don't think they were necessarily looking to buy when we first talked, but, um, you know, we, we, we both had sort of a need, and it just happened to fall in place that it worked really well at the timing. So that's been obviously now over a year. So, you know, your next question would be is, well, how does that work? Uh, you know, <laughs> how do you manage to, to, to sell your practice? So number one is I, I, I did, I sold the practice. Uh, my commitment was to sort of stay with the practice and we didn't really define a, a complete endpoint, though it was always known that my goal was, is that eventually I would just step out and, uh, certainly with any client interfacing stuff. Um, that, uh, that's been fairly successful. It's taken a lot longer. For one of the things, clients' allegiance, and this is something that I think advisors, it, when you've worked with a client and built a relationship with them, you know their, their life story, their situation, you know, the names, their family names. I, you know, you're just, <clears throat> it's such a relational business that for the, the thought of losing their advisor, you know, it's 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 a kind of a frightening point. So, um, you know, I, I tell people staying in the business, being in meeting, in client meetings, still, you know, doing some follow-up and discussion. We just decided that the best thing to do was make that a very gradual sort of uh, almost like going through withdrawal, I guess. We just – I just stepped back gradually. And so it, I've been pretty much full-time in all the meetings with clients, though – from the beginning, we identified a, a, a planner in the firm uh, and who was ultimately going to pick up and take over and be the planner for all the clients that moved over. And he and I have worked together um, both in doing planning and, and, and all the phone calls and conversations and emails. We're sharing everything with clients. And it's, I think it's been pretty clear, uh, it was communicated that, you know, I wasn't necessarily leaving. I was just joining the firm. But eventually, of course, someday I would leave, and my clients all knew that anyway. That wasn't going to be a big surprise to them. I guess we just kind of naturally assumed they would, they would get the picture, and I think they have. Um, now, we did this for the first year without saying anything. Um, and then after the first year, I wrote a letter to the clients and just told them that, by the way, I was going to be taking off for about a month in the summer, this, this past summer, uh, which I did, and that when I came back, my focus in the firm was going to be uh, investment research, working more on the investment and portfolio analysis side, and less in planning. 
So that, that's communicated a couple of things. One, it meant they probably would have less touch points for, with me. Um, and I told them that they, they still would have, you know, this, the, um, the other planner would continue to schedule uh, their calls and follow-up visits. And, you know, if they had questions, they could call. But we also left it, they could also give me a call. You know, if they have a question, don't hesitate to call. That's fine. Um, but we'd probably get uh, some other folks involved. And, and the firm was large enough, they, they had different people they would deal with anyway, depending on what their needs were. So, you know, we, we started that trend. Um, and we plan on staying in that mode up until uh, next summer. You know, at next summer is probably is the time frame. Uh, at least at this point, I'm not saying I, I'm not going to be still involved somehow, but it'll probably be more project oriented. There may be a little bit of um, investment research and stuff. I've I've kind of moved into doing some due diligence on some private placement investments for the firm. So things that really don't have any client interaction um, to speak of. At least they don't need to, from my standpoint. And they can kind of be done just ad hoc uh, here, still from my home. Um, but so far, uh, other than the first year being much busier, it's much harder to transition because you, the clients have to get used to the new firm's processes, um, and their planning process was somewhat different. So they used a financial life planning process that um, is a little, little bit different or maybe quite a bit different, I guess. So the, I think the clients had to get that. But just, you know, we, I wanted them to feel like the, the transition was – was natural and comfortable, and so they could feel very much at home, and they could transfer the trust they'd had in me to their new advisor. That that was kind of our goal. We just felt like all along, I think two years was probably what that would take, and it seems to be working that way. I guess we'll know in about another uh, nine months. <laughs> That's when the real test comes. Yeah, it is. When your clients transitioned over to the new firm, I mean, I know it's a very financial planning heavy firm. Did they have to pay and go through that whole financial planning process again, or what did that look like? Yeah, they did. Um, that was that was pretty tough. Um, so, I mean, some of them were play were paying a. Um, I mean, those that were still working were still paying a retainer to me on an annualized basis, and so they had already they paid two quarters worth. I was billing them quarterly, so we set. Uh, for them, because I had already been working with them and they had a financial plan on record, um, I discounted their fees. We, I negotiated with the new, the new owners and I just said, hey, you know, I don't think they're going to pay um, that startup fee that you would have if somebody were brand new. But also remember, I bring in some knowledge of them and some background. So, you know, we basically, I think it was about half. I think we charged them about half for their initial plan and I credited the two quarters I'd already collected towards that bill. So they really, those clients weren't out too much. My retired clients, that was a lot tougher. And we had to, we had to kind of set up two tiers. So we did a lot of ad hoc things. And I would say that was, uh, that was tough to work out and decide how to do. Uh, in that process, we, we did one of the clients that moved over ultimately just kind of had enough sticker shock that they kind of moved on. They just said, no, I'm, I'm just not going to pay those kind of fees. So, you know, so we, we said farewell. It was on good terms. I, I you know, I, I told all of them that was certainly their choice um, that, you know, they, they should make that decision. I encouraged most of them to try for a year and to do the initial plan and, and see how it worked out. But this one just did, never did. We, we worked with them for about, uh, 
I guess it's about nine months. They actually moved their accounts over uh, and delayed starting the planning, which we allowed them to do for six months. And then we kind of sat down and said, we need to schedule this. And they just refused. But the fees, the fee piece was probably the toughest. Fees were much higher at the new firm. And they were, they were much heavier planning focused. But the good discussions come out of that too, because as we've done that together and sat down and thought about it coming from where I was and where they were, you know, we talked about, Hey, well, there really are some tiers here. There are people that you know whose lives are probably less complex. They probably don't need as much um, financial planning work year in and year out, and the retainer structure might not be as good with them. So we're actually in the midst, and I think over the next probably six months, probably really taking a look at um, what are, what are the services and what are the fees associated with those based on these tiers that we're sort of seeing naturally within the practice. So it, it, it's it's created some some new thinking on their part as well as kind of uh, from where I was. So. so even the AUM fees went up for the clients. Yes, the AUM fees went up too. That's true because I was seventy five basis points and they were a, they were a, um, a full hundred basis points on assets under management. So that was a not not many of the clients really had a problem with that. That was a surprise to me. I didn't get as much pushback there. I mean, we got some. I mean, people moaned about it a bit, but they came over. And I think what happened was is they sort of went out and looked around the industry to see what was out there. And they sort of realized at that point, well, that's that's probably a fairly nominal number. I mean, it's probably the most common. Have there been any other client transition issues that you weren't expecting that you've run into? Cycle, the, the amount of time needed to meet with clients when you're doing this kind of change um, is, is a lot more so involved. My expectation was is, oh, well, we're going to you know, meet with the clients, which we did. We did an introductory meeting with, with all, of, all of those. I think, like I told you, I think they ended up being 19. So we scheduled like 19 meetings with these clients, and that's, that's pretty cumbersome. Um, and one of the things we required is, is when we met with them uh, – all of the team in the firm would be available to be able to meet them, so they would be able to meet everybody. Um, though those that, and then turning around and going through the planning process, the new planning process that we cycled all of them through, that that was really intensive. And so, I I just way underestimated the amount of time. Plus, internally meeting and um, you know looking at the data, you know the transition of data. We, we were fortunate. The you know I I'll, I will say this. And most of you will recognize this. Whatever financial planning software package you're using in one firm, when you go to the new firm, if they're using a completely different one, you expect that to be a real challenge. In this case, we were using the exact same financial planning software. So there was no change. But the way they used it was much different. And in that sense, it caught me a little off guard. Because up front and in talking about it, I just kind of checked that box off and said, oh, good. We're both we're both using this, <laughs> and I thought, oh, that'll be great, um, but I, I wasn't. It, it was a little more difficult for me because uh, the the way I used the reports, the way we entered data, just the whole structure of of uh, I I captured a lot more information in the financial planning software. They didn't. They captured a whole lot more. Um, uh, in a in a in a different system, and so and they were much heavier in their CRM. Um, the way they used it than I had ever been. So, and I had to learn that um, as well as learn a document management system. So for me, coming on as the person who ultimately is going to step away from the business down the road, 
there was quite a learning curve. And I, I expected some, but I think I just underestimated it. I would say, you know, that, that cycle time I was thinking wasn't going to be too tough. And I'm, I'm reasonably tech savvy, but I, I would say it was a bit overwhelming up, up front. Uh, I mean, everybody was really patient. But finding out how a, another planner or another planning firm uses the tools and realizing that, oh my, they can be used much differently than the way I'm using them. For me, that was a that was kind of an interesting wake up. I, I should have known it from the corporate world, but it just hadn't occurred to me um, that it would be, you know, totally different. So I would say, yes, everything everything we touched um, was kind of a learning experience, and we were running meetings. We, we would do transition meetings for a while. We were doing them every week on Friday, and they would be about two hours. So, and that lasted probably from the time we we got into signing over the sale contract, uh, which was probably April. I think we did that intently for about three months, and then we sort of skipped it to about every other week. Um, and it finally, and, it, and that went well on for several more months. So. A lot of internal discussions that uh, I guess that part, I, it hadn't occurred to me how much in, intense work effort there was going to be and coordination and, and discussing of, well, okay, here's what, here's what we've been doing. What have you been doing? There was a whole lot of that and then kind of reconciling those to see how, you know, how we needed to do things going forward. And some of that was them just kind of figuring out with having added two new people and having an operations manager on board now, how were they going to do things? So I think some of it was just uh, – the merger or the buyout, other parts of it, it was just things that they needed to think and talk about how they wanted to do. Because prior to um, hiring an operations manager and another advisor and then buying my firm, there had just been one planner really in the firm, and everything had just been the way he had done it. So, you know, now, now all of a sudden you have two other CFPs that have back experience with different firms. So now you got three people trying to come up and saying, okay, how are we going to standardize the process? Um, and I would tell you that is still sort of a, a work in progress. That that hasn't, it's only raised new questions as we've gone through it uh, and continuing to kind of get worked out as we go. Now, like I said, they created tiers of clients, um, you know, so, sort of like a tier one, tier two, tier three client. And now they're, they, they define all the process stuff for the first tier. They're still working through. They got most of it on the second tier and then really haven't done as much work in the third tier. So I would say, you know, anyone that's thinking of selling, if you're going to, you know, really work hard at making the transition, I, I think, successful for clients, you know, it's a, you really get to roll up your sleeves and uh, spend a lot of, a lot of time together with uh, other folks in the other in the new firm. I think that's really great advice because I think people just think it's just a one-time handoff and it's just done, but it's a lot more than that. Yeah, I you know I I'm sure there are probably situations where that may happen, <laughs> where somebody just I, I guess they might kind of sell and walk away. Um, I, I worried about that both, uh, and I think we both did, but from the standpoint of well. Um, 
that just kind of almost tells the client, oh, this is a decision point. I should, uh, I, I get to decide what what firm I'm going to. I can, you know, I could go to that one that the firm, the business was sold to, but I can also go look around and shop around. And I had one client that actually did that. I think I had a couple that probably did it and didn't tell me, but I had one that was real honest and just said, well, since uh, since, since I knew your practice was, um, you know, being taken over by someone else, I, you know, I went out and met with another advisor and you know heard their perspective on things. So. Part of what the new firm has to think about, the purchasing firm, is uh, how do we present ourselves and how do we convince clients to stay? And and some of that we agreed up front was, well, if I stay, if they've been working with me, if I'm there for an extended period as opposed to just, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of gone and they never see me again, it's a little more difficult because the client's kind of trying to say, hmm, well, okay, I still – you know, still have the same advisor, the same person that's part of that team, and we we told them that they're you know we we use a team approach, um, which is is legitimately true because we have a separate person that heads up investment management of the new firm, and then they have a planner, and then of course we have a, a you know a client services person, uh, as well as uh, someone that does sort of scheduling and stuff. So there there is sort of a team approach. But in essence, it just made them kind of – it was a little easier for them to meet people and work with them over a two-year period and get more and more comfortable and kind of get past that, oh, I, you know, I need to make a decision. I think people that once they've worked with uh, an advisory firm and their money gets moved over, uh, it's a little – it's not easy to want to go change, and you know you got to go out and interview a lot. So it is a path of least resistance if you give them a reason to stay. Um, that's what we found. When, when when we had 16 of the 19 that, that said yes and, tra- and signed over and moved, um, and we even picked up some new money in that, Hannah. So uh, it kind of worked out really good for the new firm. I mean, we, we, we've seen uh, you know, uh, some increase in assets as a result of it because we were able to kind of talk to them about the story, about having one place, um, one advisor. Some of them had accounts they had held outside or – you know, maybe an old IRA their wife had that you know they hadn't shared with me or uncovered. So it, it was a very it was very effective, I think, for everyone. You're working with them now. Did you sell your practice for like a multiple of earnings and then go to salary, or how are you structuring kind of uh, your, so the money and time and complicated? Yes, it was okay. So I I, I three things. So one, I I, I did sell for a multiple uh, distributed over uh, a multi-year period. So I sold I sold the book of business that way, um, but during the first six months, uh, because remember we we transitioned in the middle of a year, uh, we actually did a revenue sharing there. So it's kind of complicated. So I really didn't sell my practice until just this year, the 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 second part of 2015. We did a revenue split because. And and that was only because you know I just said wait a minute I I, I thought we weren't I wasn't going to do the sale until the end of 2015, and then we got to talking about we needed to get started on it earlier, which was a smart decision and it was the right thing to do. But I decided to go ahead and do a split, so I did a like a 40-60 split on revenue for that six months. So we started the next year as counting as the first year of income, and then we did a multiple of that that was paid out over like I said a period of years, which was something I asked for. Um, so, and then I contracted back um, starting um, in 2016. I, I started a, as a contract, basically, member of the team. So I billed them hourly for hours worked. Plus, starting in 2016, I also took a retainer contract 
based on the knowledge I have of specialized non-qualified plans under uh, under AT&T, my former employer. So to, to last over, oh, it's a it's a quarterly retainer. I think it lasts four years. So that that lives beyond my contracting. Any anything I contract, I'm actually working still for them. You know, um, in meetings and those kinds of things. So I'm getting paid really three ways. So only a portion of it was really the sale. Um, and I don't even, you know, I haven't sat down to think about it, even if that's the, that probably is the larger piece, I guess, the multiple. But, um, but it, it, you know, it, it, you know, we, I even reduced it just to be able to make the retainer piece um, a little more substantial. <coughs> and I suppose every sale probably has different approaches and different ways of doing it. I, I think. In some sense, the multiple makes sense to me, um, and I probably would have done just just a multiple. If I were going to walk away, that probably would have been all I would have looked at. Um, I had developed a working relationship, and I still enjoy doing some of what I'm doing. Well, I enjoy doing quite a bit of what I'm doing, so I, I didn't really want to lose that. So part of the deal was to be able to stay a part of that for at least a few more years, which is, you know, I, I probably would have run my practice at least for another three to four years, I think. So um, that's one of the reasons I set up the retainer to sort of last that length of time. And, um, you know, if I get called back in to do any project work, that's covered by uh, the contracting piece, too. So I kind of felt like it was a probably – I think everybody felt comfortable with it. Uh, for them, it kind of gave them the ability to increase some revenue uh, that they didn't have to pay out the door right away and trying to buy the practice all up front. Um, and it kind of kept me involved for a while. So – like, I'm, I'm thinking we all were pretty happy. I guess you'd have to ask the other side, too. But uh, I think they were pretty well satisfied that it worked out well. The only thing I would say is I, I did know that I, I really did need to uh, back away at some point. And so I, I had said all along, look, uh, you know, we, we may be doing this, the sale in 2015. Um, and, and, you know, of course, I, I, I worked into 16 and I probably will 17. But I told them, I said, you know, there is a drop-dead date, and I'm not saying that that doesn't mean I'm not available or, or willing to step up if there's, you know, something that's of interest to me that sounds like fun. And we've talked about sort of what, what areas that, you know, what, what areas I would be involved with. But I said, as far as client interaction, uh, I will phase out next year. I, I just, you know, I, I don't need to be involved in – that's not really healthy for them. They need to pick up and they need to interface. The, the new advisor really needs to own the clients and be their, their single point of contact. So next year, that's, that's where we go. And we're trying to accomplish that, you know, hopefully by, uh, by summer of next year. You know, I, I have clients that have done that well. You know, it, it depends on the personality. But I've got some clients that, you know, they've had no problem. They've, they've – very much moved on. <laughs> Sometimes, they, you know, I probably should say that can kind of feel weird. It's kind of like, uh oh, they've abandoned me. <clears throat> but it's actually a healthy thing. Others still, I, I seem to be sort of, they're, you know, they're, they sort of still cling. So those, you know, we hopefully over the next, well, you know, we have probably what nine or ten months. Uh, hopefully, we do a better job of that. Um, but that's just personalities. Some, some of them are difficult. And some of these people are people, by the way, that I worked beside uh, and have known probably for 20 years. So that, that's part of the issue here is, you know, the, the, the closer my relationships were with them, I think the more challenging it is for them to sort of let go and, and, and move on. There's so many advisors who retire, and I think that 
point of letting go is so hard. And I think that's been one of the biggest struggles that I've seen with succession plans is people actually letting go. So I'm really impressed that you're kind of pushing that issue, if you would. Uh, yeah, that's been, yeah, that's, it's been interesting to kind of watch the, the dynamics of relationships there. Well, I think that one of the things is it kind of gets difficult. And I, you know, I, I would have to say I, that the firm has been very, very open, uh, surprisingly so, to ask my opinion about, <clears throat> well, you know, this is the way we do it. Uh, by the way, how did you do it? That, that's, that's been kind of eye-opening. I don't think every buying firm's that way. Um, they were small enough and, and tailored enough that I think they could think about it. But they also, remember, uh, invited me and asked me to go through their, their planning process, and I had some aha moments of, wow, th- this is this is really an approach and some things I hadn't thought about. And then when we started going through it with my clients, it was validated by the fact that in some of the planning sessions, as we went through what they would refer to as discovery and goal setting and obstacles, I, I realized I was learning things about my clients that I had worked, some of them I had worked with for several years that I didn't know. So I knew it was that there were improvements to be made in my process. So, you know, you kind of have to go, okay, uh, I didn't have a perfect process myself, so we'll learn. And they were willing to say, oh, and how did you do this? And why did you do it that way? And so we were, you know, I, you know we sort of were reinventing some things as we went together um, which probably was was the right approach, but I don't think that happens all the time. I think in some cases a buying firm thinks we have our process, we're just going to replicate it and move on. Well, that's a really tough on the advisor that's sort of giving up because it's kind of like everything you did then obviously has no value. Um, and and I didn't I never had that sense. So I would say they 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 went out of their way to make make me feel comfortable that they did want to listen and learn and. As a result, you know, um, you know, they probably honed on some things. We adjusted on some fees, uh, even that they had they had been pretty strong about uh, for the clients that moved over. So I, I, my gut feel is is yeah, it, it is a struggle for a lot of places, and I've heard the same thing. Uh, you know, I've heard you know there's situations that uh, there instead of being a, a, a nice, clean, friendly buyout, it's more like an unfriendly takeover. Um, uh, there's a lot of frustration. I didn't experience that. So as we kind of wrap up, I mean, being a career changer, I mean, I feel like you've had a very untraditional path within the financial planning world. To somebody who is just starting out or is in another career and looking at transitioning, I mean, what is your? what do you wish you would have known at that point? You better enjoy um, doing things that aren't part of delivering service to client because owning your own business, you're going to do those things. It has nothing to do with, you know, uh, running running a financial plan or making investment decisions or allocation decisions or doing risk profiling. It it has everything to do with thinking about the financial side of your own business. Um, you know, thinking about you know how, how you want to set up, what systems you want to use. If you don't like to do that stuff, wow, you need to go be a part of a firm. You you need to be a firm that's already established. They've already selected all the tools they're going to use, and they probably just get you in and get you trained on them. And there's people to answer your questions, to to help you do that. I didn't have that. Uh, you know, it was a kind of a I get to watch a lot of uh, online videos about how the tools work, uh, or call them up and ask questions about things. But so I I believe it depends on a little bit of what you feel like your skill sets are, and also sort of what it is you're wanting to accomplish overall personally. That, that would be the way I would put it. So I don't think there's a one answer fits everybody. 
uh, usually if somebody asks me that question, I start asking them about what do you want to do? What do you enjoy doing? Um, you know, and, and pretty quickly it becomes pretty evident sort of, oh, well, you know, I just love sitting down and, and you know, visiting with, with the client and finding out more about what their situation is and what they're doing. I said, well, you need to do financial planning. Um, and, and you probably need to get into a firm where they're looking for somebody to grow into a role to be a, you know, a lead financial planner or, you know, a senior uh, financial planner in the firm, and that's it. I just gather, but other people, you know, have some some uh, some skill sets too in terms of business management. So there's a lot of different ways of approaching the business. Uh, as a, you know, as a certified financial planner, I did want to do that. That's what I wanted to be able to do because I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the the reward and the success of seeing clients begin to be worked with, and then eventually they would just evolve to a point after a few years, you can kind of see, oh, they're implementing the plan and they're making progress and they can see that. That was good. But I also kind of enjoyed, you know, evaluating and going to a technology conference and looking at the new tools and seeing how they compared with the way I was doing things or with the, the planning tool that I was using. Um, all of that was kind of a part of it. So I kind of knew I wanted to do, huh, I guess, be a jack of all trade, master of none, as the quote goes. I, I, I thought that would be fun. Uh, it was. It's just every day is kind of a whole new experience, right? Um, you, you, you touch a lot of different things in the course of a week. And I would say probably a third or more of that, uh, depending on the week, is has nothing to do with delivering financial planning services. That's great advice. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us today, Ron. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you, Hannah. Thanks for listening to this episode of You're a Financial Planner, Now What? I hope you enjoyed this episode. Join us again next week as we share more stories and tips on how to fast track your career.